As we read Acts and the early letters of Paul in the New Testament, we see people of the early church selling everything, constantly in worship, doing miracles. Does that mean we should also do those things? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. The history of the early church is no doubt exciting as they worked miracles, held everything in common, and lived a life of continual worship. However, a key question for us living today is to determine which of their actions we should follow as normative, meaning that it's a continuing command for the church, and what should we understand as simply history and a story that tells us about what the early church did, but not necessarily something that we need to practice. That's precisely what we're going to talk about in our podcast today. These are not merely intellectual questions, but they're ones that have divided denominations and caused no end of misunderstanding in churches. And they cover a whole variety of topics. For example, do we baptize infants or do we baptize adults? Do we put them underwater? Do we sprinkle them? Exactly what do we do? The method and the frequency of communion and the Lord's Supper, is it monthly or yearly or daily? Who can do it? Who can't do it? All kinds of questions on that. What's the proper place of miracles and healing? Are Christians supposed to live communally or not? Are women supposed to teach or not? Well, this week we're going to look at these different things and hopefully get some guidelines to help us not only in our own behavior, but how we interact with each other. I'm sure that we all want to please the Lord. I think that's the underlying thing that we want to keep in mind when we study any of these things. And no church sets out to do something just the way they want to do it. But when people say things like, well, that's how they did it in the early church, that seems to carry so much weight. And just because they did it that way in the early church, does that mean that we need to always do it that way? I think you'll learn from this study that that many of the questions will be answered if you simply read the entire New Testament. It's kind of like in the Old Testament, how I was constantly telling you, read the whole thing, read the whole thing. Scripture is the best commentary on Scripture, and it works like that a lot in the New Testament also. But in addition to simply reading the whole thing, I would like to recommend to you a book I've recommended many times before, and that is How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Fee and Stewart. In it, they talk about the general principles that we can apply in deciding what things in the New Testament should we do continuously because they really are a command and what things can we look at simply primarily as history. I'm going to condense about four chapters of some very good detailed study into primarily two things and that is that we need to distinguish in the New Testament between what happened and what is supposed to happen. Now what happened makes up the historical documents, those that are written to specific churches during a specific time. And as such, we need to sort out what is the historical and cultural setting. Now that isn't to say that it isn't true or or anything like that, but some of these are simply reporting incidents that happened. 
And in reporting that it happened, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should continuously do it. For example, in Acts 2, 44-47, it says they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, a number of things are going on here that are history that tells us exactly what happened during this early transitional time in the church, but some of the things that most churches today do not practice, first of all, just communal living, everybody selling their stuff and joining together, also meeting in the temple. No churches that I know of meet in a Jewish temple. And two, that just daily interactions that they had with each other. You see, even in the church, even in what was going on there in Jerusalem, eventually they had to move out of the temple and get back to work. But this was this tells us about the very joyful way that the church was started in this communal living. And also too, as some commentators have pointed out, the people that were first involved in the church, many of them who were, were pilgrims who'd come to Jerusalem initially for Passover and for Pentecost, and they needed some temporary support. They needed people to take care of them until they were able to get back to their regular lives. But even even though this was a temporary situation, the underlying scriptural principle that we are commanded to care for each other continues in the New Testament and in all the Bible. Now then also there are some things that are never repeated, never explained, and one of the most confusing passages in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 15:29, where it says, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? As many commentators say today, and even back in church history, Tertullian, one of the early commentators said, I have no idea what this passage is about or what it refers to. And that's what commentators say today. It's what's called a hapix. It's a instance mentioned one time. Apparently some churches did this, but it is not repeated and it is not commanded. And therefore it is not something that we should feel that we have to do or that we base a theology on. In contrast, there are many things in the historical book of Acts and in the epistles that we are to follow. One of them, of course, is the Lord's Supper. It is mentioned in numerous passages. In some of them, Paul rebukes people on how they shouldn't be doing certain things. Other ones, he tells them what they should do. But it is mentioned numerous times, and we are commanded to do it. Now, one distinction that we should also make when we read through the different things that happen in the New Testament church and what's mentioned in the following letters is to determine between what is primary and what is secondary. One very well-known saying that all of us need to remember and follow is the saying that says, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity. In other words, there are essential things in the faith. These are things like acknowledging that Jesus is Lord and Savior. He is part of the three-person 
eternally existing trinity, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived, that he died for our sins and rose for our salvation and is coming again. He is our only Lord and Savior. Now that is essential, but there are many other non-essentials and some denominations and some people elevate them to a very high status and in some ways that's okay, but it really isn't essential the exact mode of baptism that we practice or how often we practice communion or maybe what uh, uh, version we read of the Bible and uh, frequency of communion, all these kinds of things, a lot of them really are secondary in the faith. Now let's look at how some of these things applied in the first two books in our Read Through the Bible program. Let's talk a little bit now about 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. Now these books were written by Paul from Corinth in about 51 AD. They're one of the some couple of the earliest books of the New Testament. Commentators sort of argue whether Thessalonians or Galatians was written first and that's definitely a secondary issue. They were both written, they were both divinely inspired and that's the most important thing. But uh, Thessalonica was a seaport, it was a center of trade, and let's look for a few minutes at how that church started. This is talked about in Acts 17, and it says, Now they, Paul and Silas, traveled through the cities of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and then they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was Paul's custom, he went there to preach, and for three Sabbaths in a row, he opened the scriptures to the people, explaining the prophecies about the sufferings of the Messiah and his coming back to life and proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Some who listened were persuaded and became converts, including a large number of godly Greek men and also many important women of the city. But the Jewish leaders were jealous and incited some worthless fellows from the streets to form a mob and start a riot. They attacked the home of Jason. He was apparently the synagogue leader, planning to take Paul and Silas to the city council for punishment. Not finding them, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers and took them before the council instead. And they said, Paul and Silas have turned the rest of the world upside down, and now they're disturbing our city. Jason has let them into his home. They're all guilty of treason, for they claim another king, Jesus, instead of Caesar. The people of the city, as well as the judges, were concerned at these reports, and they let them go only after they posted bail. That night the Christians hurried Paul and Silas to Berea, and as usual, they went to the synagogue to preach. But the people of Berea were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they gladly listened to the message. They searched the scriptures day by day to check up on Paul and Silas' statements to see if they were really so. As a result, many of them believed, including several prominent Greek women and many men also. But the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching in Berea, and they went over and stirred up trouble. The believers acted at once, sending Paul on to the coast, while Silas and Timothy stayed behind. So here we have the founding of the church, and Paul followed his usual program where he goes to a Jewish synagogue, and the reason he goes there is because here were people, and it was usually a mixed group of ethnic Jews and those Gentiles 
who had joined themselves to the Jews in, in search of the true God. But they had been studying the scriptures for literally centuries, and they were expecting a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah. And so when Paul tells them about Jesus and shows how he fulfilled all these things that the Messiah was supposed to do, they were then ready to accept him. So he always, he does this first. But typically the people that did not believe it, did not accept it, did not want their Jewish way of life disturbed, they cause a lot of trouble. And so they kick Paul out. He goes to uh, to Berea, and they follow him there and cause all kinds of additional trouble. But he planted a church. And uh, some time goes by. We don't know exactly how much. But when he gets around to writing the book of First Thessalonians, he commends them for their faith. And here's what he says when he starts out writing to the Thessalonians. He says, I always thank God for you and pray for you constantly. We never forget your loving deeds as we talk to our God and Father about you and your strong faith and steady looking forward to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on to commend them some more and then he answers some of their questions now we don't have time to go into all of them but the primary one that they had was about Jesus return and about well what happened to the people that already died and here's how he answers he says and now dear brothers I want you to know what happens to a Christian when he dies so that when it happens you will not be full of sorrow as those who have no hope for since we believe that Jesus died and then came back to life again, we can also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him all the Christians who have died. Now this verse is very precious to me personally right now because my brother-in-law, my sister's husband of 42 years, recently went to be with Jesus. And of course we sorrow. It's a tremendously sad time and we cried and we cried and we cried and we still cry when we think about it. But we don't sorrow as those that have no hope because we know we're going to see him again. We know that he is free from pain and that he lives in incredible joy as he waits for us to, to come and join him again someday. But Paul goes on and he says, I can tell you this directly from the Lord, that we who are still living when the Lord returns will not rise to meet him ahead of those who are in their graves. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a mighty shout and with a soul-stirring cry of the ark angel and the great trumpet call of God and the believers who are dead will be the first to rise to meet the Lord what he means here is their bodies will rise their spirits are already with him but their their bodies their immortal eternal resurrected bodies will rise and meet the Lord then we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and remain forever so comfort and encourage each other with this news. And it is wonderful news. And then with that assurance in mind, then he goes on to tell them sort of, now with this in mind, this is how you're supposed to live. And he says, live at peace with each other. And we urge you brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always, 
Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. And may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. And may your whole soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And you see, he encourages them. He tells them, Jesus is coming again. You're going to be reunited with your loved ones. And so, in anticipation of that, live like it. Live in a way that pleases God. Be thankful in everything. Now, a little side note here something very important. He doesn't say be thankful for everything. There's lots of things that happen in this life that we can't be thankful for. There are truly evil things and sad things, things that make us want to cry, things that that really rip our hearts apart. We're not thankful for those, but we are thankful in them because we know that Jesus is in control and that one day all wrongs will be righted. In 2 Thessalonians, he goes on to address a little problem that people were in some ways becoming too hopeful and they thought, well, if Jesus is coming back, let's just kick back and wait for him. And he says, no, 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 no. You don't just sit back and wait. You get to work. And this is where that somewhat famous passage is. is He says, now we work day and night laboring for you and you're supposed to do it too. He said, when we were with you, we had this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. But So, you know, you're supposed to keep busy. He says, um, you know, never tire of doing good. Keep working and in anticipation, wait for the Lord. Then in Corinthians, there's all kinds of different things uh, going on. Now, Corinth was a very, uh, very rowdy city, very... Uh, very corrupt city. It was a major seaport. It was extremely wealthy. A number of commentators have described it as New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas all rolled into one. But Paul still founded a church there. And it talks about how at each Sabbath, Paul, after he got to Corinth, he was at the synagogue trying to convince the Jews and the Greeks alike. After the arrival of Silas and Timothy from Macedonia, he spent his full time preaching and testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, you see this same pattern showing them from the Old Testament, this is what you were expecting, this is what has come. But when the Jews opposed him and blasphemed, hurling abuse at Jesus, Paul shook the dust from his robe and said, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will preach to the Gentiles. It goes on to say he stayed with Titus Justus, a Gentile who worshipped God and lived next door to the synagogue. However, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, and all his household believed in the Lord and were baptized, as were many others in Corinth. And one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and said, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't quit, for I am with you and no one can harm you. Many people here in this city belong to me. So Paul stayed there the next year and a half, teaching the truth of God. So he was there quite a while. Remember, he was only there about three weeks in Thessalonica. Here he's there a year and a half, and apparently they really needed it because when he gets around to writing his letters to them later, they're still having all kinds of problems. But his time in Corinth was very productive, and not only did he teach a lot, but he's joined by Aquila and Priscilla, two characters that we will hear about more in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, who became great 
great leaders in the church. They had left Rome because of persecution. They were tent makers. They were believers. And so they linked up with Paul because he was also a tent maker. And that was one of the ways that he supported himself before a church had a chance to support him. He's also later joined there by a man named Apollos. Now, a lot of people assume uh, mistakenly that he was a Greek because of his name, but he wasn't. He was a Jew. And he, at first, only knew about the baptism of John. And he was just preaching it very forcefully and was so excited about the kingdom of God coming. And then when uh, Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they said, uh, <laughs> you're kind of missing out on something really important. So they, it says they invited him to their home and they explained the word of God more thoroughly to him and said, Jesus has come. And Apollos immediately accepted that and became one of the great preachers in the church. But the church in Corinth grows, Paul leaves, he's traveling around, and then he gets a letter finding out that there was all kinds of challenging things going on in the church and he they had fights about leadership one of them some of the groups said well I follow Paul and another one said I follow Apollos and then some of the super spiritual ones said oh no no it's not human people I just follow Jesus and so that was going on there was a lot of sexual immorality one man in the church and the church kept him in the church until Paul said you've got to discipline him he was actually living it says with his father's wife Apparently his father had married someone, we presume maybe younger, whatever, but the son ends up living with her. Dreadful thing to do. Lawsuits going on. Problems with worship. They would get together for the Lord's Supper, and Paul says, and some of you get drunk and eat too much, and then other people are there, and they don't have anything to eat. He's going, this is not what is supposed to happen. So the church there has just a lot of challenges. So Paul writes to them, and he lays down certain rules. One little passage, I just have to mention this, that um, is oftentimes kind of read over very quickly, and that is where it, it talks about how women are supposed to be in the church. And it says, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same of having her head shaved. And it goes on to say, so she should cover her head when she is praying or prophesying. Now, the thing that's key here that is sometimes missed by people is, and I I sort of challenged my Sunday school class when I did the lesson, I said, what does it say that they're doing? What does it say the woman is doing? And from the plain grammar, it says, when she prays and prophesies. And we skip over that sometimes. And we get sidetracked on head coverings or whatever. But the point is, that was being done in the early church. Women were praying and prophesying, which are leadership gifts in the church. Prophesying is preaching. It is sharing the word of God. So this was going on. And basically what Paul is saying here is then this is the way you are supposed to do it with your head covered. Um, Those who say that women have no place in the church or no place of leadership or teaching, they just ignore the clear statement of this passage. And it was kind of interesting, too. I showed my class. I'm actually thinking next year about redoing these lessons with with a lot of the visual aids that I show in my class. But there are early 
frescoes from the early church, from the catacombs, that show women uh, standing before groups with their hands raised, position of leadership, but they have their head covered. And the whole point of the head covering is that was a sign of submission and what was the respectful thing to do. When I And I was saying to my class, you know, when I teach, I try to dress very respectfully. I don't dress like I'm going to the beach or, or something like that. I, I try to wear very modest clothing. I almost always wear a cross. I just, you know, there's a certain way that, that I try to conduct myself when I am in a teaching position in the church. And this is this is what he was talking about. So it's a great uh, cultural telling of, of actually what happened. And not necessarily with the whole head covering thing, what should happen at all times. But we keep the sense of it in that we should be respectful. Now, in the Quaker church, for example, too, later on had different things that, that they did that not everybody else did. And one of the things is that Quakers will, this is just showing how a secondary issue can be carried on in the church. They will wear a hat in church and nobody else did it in other churches. And this is how one of the Quaker websites explained it. It said, why would not a Quaker remove his hat in the presence of ladies or men of note or in his own meetings of worship? As with other curious Quaker customs, this too had its meaning. To lift or doff the hat was once a sign of servile regard, or at least of personal respect. With his firm belief in the absolute equality of man, the Quaker continued to wear his hat, seeing no reason why he should remove it, even during a sermon. For such came from the lips of a man. But when he addressed God in prayer, then all arose removed their hats, and stood uncovered before the one supreme being. So you see, here is a secondary issue that became very important to one particular church. And I would say that, you know, it really doesn't matter. But if you're in a Quaker church, you respect what they do. And we we respect different denominations. And if they want to choose to observe a secondary issue a certain way, that's just fine. But don't think that just because something happened or didn't happen in the early church that we have to do it. Where something is mentioned in the Bible, especially if it's only mentioned once, it's there to tell us what happened, not necessarily that we should do it. Just because something happened in the early church, and there are so many different things we could go over, and you'll run into them in your reading, just because it happened in the early church does not give it special power or meaning. If anything, many of the actions described, for example, when they held all things in common in Jerusalem, are transitional, or what we call it in modern uh, language, sort of baby steps to the development of the church. You see, it isn't these things that are what we're supposed to follow. And for example, also too, in Corinthians and Thessalonica, they did a lot of bad things. There were a lot of bad examples. But you see, the Bible isn't just about the bad examples of people, but it's of God's grace and what he does for all of us in spite of all our failings. I think he's given us the history of the early church, not so that we'll copy it, thinking that they're just the greatest thing, but that we will praise God, who in his kindness and love saved all of them, saves all of us, and welcomes us into his church. We don't start the Christian life perfectly, either the church as a whole or us as individuals, but we're still part 
of the body of Christ because of what Jesus did. And though we grant grace to all the transitional baby steps in their lives and ours, let me end with repeating that wonderful passage in Thessalonians that talks about how we should live. Not worried about these picky little secondary things, but to repeat our earlier passage, live in peace with each other. Warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure no one pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. May God, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. And as I read that, I was reminded of the story of Peter when he saw Jesus walking on the water, and he says, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come and meet you. And so Jesus said, come on down. And Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking towards him. And then he looks at the wind and the waves, and he panics, and he sinks. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't just say, well, you didn't have enough faith. Go under. No, he reaches down, and he pulls him up. And that, I think, is such a perfect picture of how Jesus deals with us every day as we grow in the faith. We start out maybe our day or our week or whatever just full of faith and energy and we we go along a little ways and then we panic and we sink. But Jesus doesn't just let us drown. He reaches up. He pulls us up. He is always there for us. Like that passage says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. He will help you mature and he will bring you safely home into the kingdom of God. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're in downloadable PDF format. And there's other materials also on www.bible805.com. Until next time, I'm Yvonne Pratt, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus. And I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.